We've taken a leap forward through the book of Matthew this Sunday. The disciples have been traveling with Jesus for a while now and have heard his wise and world-turning teachings. They have seen Jesus' miraculous works of healings, of calming a storm on the sea, and of walking on water. They have been sent out themselves where they've healed people and preached the coming of the kingdom of God. And now we come to the big question asked of the disciples. Who do they think Jesus is? So turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 15. The Pharisees come to Jesus with an accusation. Your disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, the aversion to the unsanitary action is not the same aversion, uh, our aversion to this unsanitary action is not the same aversion that the Pharisees had to this lack of washing, at least not totally. Especially nowadays, if someone wash, doesn't wash their hands before a meal or now even come home from somewhere and not wash their hands right away, we're a little put off. But the Pharisees aren't worried about germs. They're worried about ceremonial uncleanliness. The washing of hands was to bring purity of any uncleanliness that may have defiled them. Uh, and this is a ceremonial type. Perhaps someone who had come into contact with a dead animal touched the fence where you had touched, or perhaps a woman had grabbed the pot that you had grabbed during her time of the month. And if so, you were then considered ceremonially unclean by contact with that same kind of defilement. It's uh, similar to the wilderness. The priests weren't able to come into the tabernacle or into the presence of God or into the temple to offer their sacrifices if they touched something that a person who touched a dead body touched or uh, any kind of defilement like that. And the Pharisees carry that over to the common people. And then if you took that without washing your hands and ate something, then that defilement crossed over onto that food and went into you and into the core of your being. And so the solution to this was to use the same ritual that was prescribed to the priests in Exodus 30. You pour some water over your hands. So you have a bowl, you scoop up some water and pour it over one hand and over the other. And the running water washes away the defilement. And this was the tradition of the elders. It was a rule that the leaders put together to make sure people followed the law of God. It was a buffer zone that they created. If the line of God was here, then they would make a tradition that was here. So that if you accidentally cross this line, you're still far enough away from crossing the law of the God line. But in the end, they just ended up moving the goalposts back. Crossing the line of the tradition became just as bad as crossing the line of the law. So Jesus' disciples weren't following the tradition here. And so the Pharisees come with a charge against their teacher, Jesus, that Jesus must be leading them astray by making sure that they're, or by not making sure that they're following this practice. But Jesus turns the accusation on them. The Pharisees say his disciples aren't following the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus says to them, but why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, while the tradition was designed to keep them from breaking the law, Jesus claims that they are actually allowing the tradition to protect them from having to keep the law or from the consequences of keeping the law. 
And the example he puts before them is over their own tradition of devoting things to God. Now, devoting things to God sounds like something that would be completely fine and encouraged. But in this case, Jesus is talking about devoting something that was made for supporting your aging parents. Some during this time period believed that one of the most important of the commandments was to honor your father and your mother. And if you've ever heard a message having anything to do with that commandment, you've probably heard that it's the only commandment that comes with a promise. It says in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother so that it will go well with you in the land, in the promised land. And so in following this, it was expected that good Jewish children, when they could start earning money on their own, would save some of that money to support their parents when they reached old age and couldn't work for themselves. Today, we often see parents or grandparents perhaps uh, put away money for their young children for when they grow up to go to college. My grandmother bought me a bunch of Canada bonds when I was a child, and uh, upon graduating high school, she gave them to me so that I could cash them in and use them towards my expensive tuition and my expensive textbooks. In Jesus' time, the practice would have been reversed. Children would be the ones buying bonds when they were starting to make some money, um, and then would cash it in and give it to their parents when their parents could no longer work to support them because they didn't have things like government pensions. The problem is that the tradition the Pharisees enforced actually caused a loophole. A person who didn't particularly like their parents could declare that all the money that was saved up is being dedicated to God and could give it to the temple instead. And then their aged parents wouldn't have any way of having income and being supported. Now the Pharisees wouldn't have encouraged this but all their insistence on the traditions created loopholes allowing people to do this. They were focused more on the traditions than the spirit of the law. They come to Jesus and say that, his uh, that he's failing his followers by not enforcing some of these traditions. But Jesus tell, turns it back on them and says they're failing to help the people in following the word of God. Jesus then goes on to show what the shepherding of the Pharisees is like as he continues to pick apart this tradition they have. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 15. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Jesus is saying that the traditions the Pharisees have set up and enforce are too simple. They're merely trying to treat outward symptoms while the disease festers within. They're caught up in the outward appearance of holiness, that they ignore their own inner sin that manifests into outward sin. Because they're blind to their own inner condition, they're blind to the inner conditions of those they lead. They are the blind leading the blind. The Pharisees' shepherding is about power. The Pharisees were the popular party amongst the everyday people, compared to the Sadducees, who, made up, who were made up of rich aristocrats that held on to control of the temple and pretty much just stayed within their wealthy circles. The Pharisees actually walked amongst the people and taught them the law. The Pharisees came to love the praise and the reverence the people had for them. 
They became showy in their practices and stern in their enforcement of the traditions they created in order to continue the holy man aura they had and to continue to enjoy the popularity of the people. Jesus reveals that the Pharisees don't actually care for the people. They just care about their praise. Hence their focus on the outward actions, the actions you can observe. If they show all the outward actions of holiness, then the people will view them as holy. If they see the people practicing those same acts of outward holiness, then they know that they are influencing the people and thus holding power over them. That's why Jesus will later call them whitewashed tombs. They're very pure looking on the outside, but inside uh, they're full of death. The shepherding of the Pharisees is then contrasted with the shepherding of Jesus. In the first, we see a Canaanite woman come and cry out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, the Pharisees would make sure that they were never caught in the company of a Canaanite woman. They were the great enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus, when he first uh, comes across this woman, actually treats her much the same way a Pharisee would if he did find himself in her company. He completely ignores her. But the woman keeps calling out to him. She persists in her request to the point where the disciples are the ones that turn to Jesus and say, send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. Now the disciples weren't necessarily saying to Jesus, just tell her to go away. Her persistence in following them and calling them out, even though Jesus is ignoring her, suggests that she probably wouldn't leave if they just said, go away. Send her away could very well be them asking Jesus to give her what she wants, so then she will leave him alone. Jesus' silence towards her actually gets his own disciples to start advocating for a woman who would be considered by them to be an enemy. And once you start advocating for someone, your attitudes towards them start changing. Jesus then turns his attention to the woman and clarifies his mission. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He has come to restore the people of God, to set them back on the path of God's purpose for them. The woman continues to plead for help, and Jesus tells this weird parable. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It seems a rather rude way to tell her that it is not right to use his resources on something outside of his mission. But this woman isn't actually as much of an outsider as we first think. At the beginning, she addressed Jesus as son of David. This is some very Jewish lingo and suggests that she knew some of the prophecies of the Messiah, who was going to be from the line of David. She then recognizes her position. Though she's not a child of Israel, it seems it is she, that she is someone who's trying to follow, and hence her knowledge of the lingo. Surely that must mean that there are some crumbs of Jesus' benevolence that she can have. And she says as such, and Jesus is astounded by her faith. Jesus' mission to the lost sheep of Israel was actually to restore them and set them back on their mission. Way back when God chose Abraham, it was to change the entire world. One of the three big promises that God gave to Abraham was that he was going to bless him. But this blessing had a purpose. He was going to bless him so that the world would be blessed through him. His choice of Israel as a people was always to draw the whole world to him. And Jesus' mission was to restore that purpose for Israel. Jesus 
has compassion on the woman and grants her request for his larger mission would eventually impact her. We then see another example of Jesus' compassion as a large group follows him way out of the nearby towns to listen to, teach, to, listen to him teach for a few days. Jesus is worried that they don't have enough to eat. They've been out there for three days. He's been healing their sick, and now it's about time for them to go home. But they might pass out on the way due to the lack of food. And so he has compassion on them. He multiplies the few loaves of bread and the few fish they have and feeds them. Here we see Jesus' shepherding of his people is holistic. Unlike the Pharisees who just care for the outward actions, Jesus looks and cares for their hearts and their needs as well. He not only teaches them the do's and don'ts, but also seeks to change their hearts and their minds. He treats the root of sin rather than just the outward symptoms. With his disciples, he gets them to advocate for a woman who they would consider to be their enemy. The people in the wilderness, he feeds them when they're hungry and cures the ailments they have. This is because Jesus shepherds his people out of love and compassion. The Pharisees seek to control the outward actions of the people, to keep those people ad people's admiration for them and their power over those people. The Pharisees come to Jesus after this, looking for an outward action, for a sign from heaven, show them some miracle so miraculous that they will believe who he is, who he says he is. This request of theirs actually mimics the temptations of Satan in the desert. Satan tells Jesus to throw himself off from the heights of the temple, and then the angels would catch him. If that happened at the temple, the epicenter of Judaism, everyone would know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And he could skip all the suffering on the cross and the death. Here the Pharisees are asking for a similar miracle for confirmation. He's already done lots of miracles of healing, but they want something that could only have been done from heaven, from God. But Jesus again refuses this because their expectations for who the Messiah is and what the Messiah comes for is all wrong. The vast majority of people during this time believed the Messiah was going to be a warrior king who would come to kick out whoever was oppressing Israel at the time, in this case the Romans, and set up the earthly kingdom of Israel. But Jesus, as the Messiah, is totally different. And he wants to see what his disciples' beliefs on who the Messiah is and who he is. And we see this in chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was a title that Jesus would use to refer to himself. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You do not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Peter identifies Jesus 
And Jesus goes on blessing and praising Peter. But Jesus' praise of Peter isn't because he identified Jesus as the Messiah. In both Mark and Luke's account of the interaction, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. And Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. No big words of blessing or praise for Peter. The difference in Matthew is that Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. New Testament scholar Andrew Ladd says, the blessing pronounced on Peter because this truth had been revealed to him must have to do with sonship to God more than messiahship. An understanding of Jesus' divine sonship would indeed require divine revelation as messiahship would not. And this is because no one expected the Messiah to also be God. They thought it would be a God-anointed human, much like King David, hence son of David. But Jesus was more than that. Jesus was also divine. Jesus was God himself. So Jesus now goes on to continue to subvert their expectations of him. They have correctly identified him as the Messiah and the son of the living God. But now he wants to make sure that their understanding of what that means lines up. He tells them that he needs to go to Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, killed, and on the third day rise again. Now that they understood that Jesus was the Messiah, they now had to understand what that meant. But Peter refuses to accept it. He takes Jesus' side and rebukes him. He says, I have named you as the Messiah, but you are now not talking about the Messiah that I labeled you as. Here now, Peter takes the role that the Pharisees did in the previous section and what Satan did in the temptation. Leon Morris in his commentary puts it like this, the evil one had tried to get Jesus to take the easy, spectacular way and to avoid the path of suffering. And that, in essence, was what Peter was advising. This is why Jesus then reacts with the harsh words, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew that the image of the Messiah was not a king upon a war horse, splayed in the air, drenched with the blood of his enemies. He knew that the purpose of Messiahship was suffering on behalf of the lost sheep. And since that is what the Messiahship means, Jesus tells them what being a follower of the Messiah means in verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels and the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Jesus' messiahship and his divinity is linked to his care for others, ultimately showing on his death on the cross. Because of this link, his followers are to be marked by the same thing. The big thing that sets Jesus apart from the Pharisees was his compassion. He saw the woman who represented the enemies of his people and had compassion on her and healed her daughter. He saw the sick who followed him out into the middle of nowhere and healed them. He saw the lost who followed him to that place, seeking the words of God and fed them both spiritually and physically. He saw the condition of his people, their hearts defiled and corrupt with sin and selfishness and took the suffering upon himself to purify their hearts and to restore their relationships. And because this is the way of the Son of God, we are called to do the same. We are called to have compassion.
And so we need to ask ourselves, what is God calling us to be compassionate about? How are we to react in following our Messiah? How do we see those who others may call enemies and to love them instead? To see those who are suffering and bring relief. To see a world suffering from a pandemic and to wear our masks and suspend our physical gatherings. To see those who are hungry for the words and love of God and to speak those words and to show that love. To see those who are hungry and hurting and to feed them and comfort them. To follow Jesus is to die to ourself. To leave aside our selfishness and instead take up compassion for those around us. Where do we need to ask God to give us more compassion? Is there a neighbor that needs help that we felt too uncomfortable with or uncomfortable to offer aid? Perhaps we need to ask God for more compassion for a neighbor to get over that uncomfortableness. Or a coworker or a classmate who drives us crazy that we need to ask God to give us more compassion for so that we can treat them with love rather than irritation. Maybe there's a confrontation that we need help stepping into to bring light and reconciliation. We can ask God for increased compassion to get over our aversion to conflict and wisdom to engage in healthy conflict. What ways do we need to seek to embrace the compassion for others over our own comforts and interests?